We'll read through our passage together, beginning at verse 4, 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 4. Everyone who practices sin <coughs> also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God sins, practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. A Bronx Tale is a play and later a movie that starred Robert De Niro. It's a story of a young man coming of age and being torn between the advice of his father on the one hand and being involved in the mafia on the other hand. And I want to show you a short clip from that movie as we begin. If you can, put on the closed captioning, if you can, Rebecca. It's not too late. City Island was the last stop on my father's route. It was one of our favorite places. It was like going on a vacation for a day. My dad would listen to his jazz and we would talk about baseball. Do our job first, and then I get you an ice cream. Okay? Okay, Pop. Let's play the game, Dad. Okay, let's see how good you are today. Who was the last player to win the Triple Crown? Mickey Mantle. Batting average, 353. RBIs, 130. Home runs, 52. That's pretty good, son. He's the greatest ball player that ever lived, Dad. Oh, Joe Dink's the greatest ball player. Yankee Clipper, 56 game winning streak. That's right. Nobody beat that, right, Dad? Nobody beat that, son. Well, you know why Joe D was so great? Because he was Italian? Well, that's part of it. Then why? Because he had more talent than anybody. Talent? That's right. Do I have talent, Dad? Of course you have talent. You got all the talent in the world. Can I be a baseball player? You can be anything you want to be. Remember, the saddest thing in life is wasted talent. You can have all the talent in the world, but if you don't do the right thing, then nothing happens. But when you do right, guess what? Good things happen. You hear me? You're right. Let's go for that ice cream. Yeah, good. I'm going to set the doors, right, Dad? Yeah. Ready? Watch it. Got it? I got it. Wasted talent. That was something my father would talk about all my life. Yeah, hey. 
The saddest thing in life is wasted talent. I'm sure we've all seen examples of this. Whether it be friends that we knew as kids, or athletes that had such great talent but never achieved, kind of the history of the Jaguars' first-round draft picks. <laughs> it could even be a family member. And we would agree that it does bring sorrow to see a person that for any number of reasons squandered their gifts and abilities and failed to achieve their best. And how true this is in the Christian life. Not that we're competing for success, but we've all been given great potential to live the Christian life. We've been shown such grace and mercy and our sins are forgiven. We're now part of God's family and we're called the children of God. And we've been given the Holy Spirit to empower us and the, and the Word of God to guide us. And, and so we all have great potential, not that we're competing to be better than one another, but to excel in living for Jesus Christ and living a life that counts for Him and makes a difference for Him. And yet, sadly and so often, these privileges and opportunities are squandered and never realized. And so many settle for minimal Christianity, mediocre, following Christ only half-heartedly. And it can be said, the saddest thing in life will be to stand before Christ and give an account of a wasted life. The Apostle John is addressing attitudes like this that have crept into the churches through false teaching. He frames the issue for his people. He frames it in terms of sin on the one hand and righteousness on the other. And the issue is being uncaring or indifferent about sin instead of a faithful and diligent pursuit of righteousness. That's how he frames this issue of, let's say, mediocrity or whatever. It's an issue between the tolerance of sin in our lives and that disciplined and dedicated pursuit of personal righteousness. And in our passage, we're going to look at this morning, John is calling us to take the matter of sin in our lives very seriously. And at the same time, he calls us to conscientiously pursue righteousness and godly living. And so I've entitled our passage today, a call to conscientious righteousness, being conscientious, intentional about living righteously. That's what, that's what this passage 
is all about. An explanatory subtitle might be, remember those old Puritan writers, they would have a title and it would be you know, three sentences long or, or something. But an explanatory subtitle might be, Why we cannot be indifferent or casual about sin and why we should pursue righteousness with greater zeal. That's what this passage is about. All right, what did we see last week by way of context? Well, we saw three things last week. Number one, we saw God's great love toward us, that He has made us His children. How great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Secondly, we saw the certain hope that we have that we will see Him, and we, when we see Him, we will be changed to be like Him. We don't know all that it's going to be, but we know that when we see Him, we will be like Him. It's not appeared yet as to what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And then thirdly, this hope of seeing Him is a purifying force in our lives now. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself, just as He is pure. So now, as we move out of that passage into our passage for today, beginning at verse 4, John picks up on this concept of purifying ourselves while we are awaiting His return and looking forward to that return. The idea that we want to live in such a way that we will not be ashamed when He comes. So he continues to talk about this theme of righteous living and the total inappropriateness of being indifferent to sin in our lives. So here we are again, as we've already seen in the book of John, that theme of sin and righteousness in the life of the follower of Christ. Why we cannot be indifferent or casual about sin and why we should pursue righteousness with greater zeal. All right, let's begin to look at our passage. First thing we see as to why we cannot be indifferent about sin is because sin is an offense to God. Verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. John seems to be trying to impress upon us here the seriousness of what sin is. And he says here that that sin in our lives is lawlessness. That's what sin is by definition. It seems most likely that John's readers were being tempted to regard sin as, you know, a matter of indifference, not not a big deal, not something about which we need to get so worked up. To fall into sin was not a serious matter. We have that same tendency. We have that same tendency to minimize the sin in our lives. We minimize it in order to excuse it, in order to somehow justify it, in order to just, so we don't have to face it. We try to make it inconsequential. 
But John says sin is lawlessness. And this is his point here. The word lawlessness carries the connotations of evil, wicked, iniquitous. It is used in the Old Testament to describe, quote, utterly despicable transgressions, unquote. That's what the word lawlessness means. So to those who were, and to those who today are, minimizing the seriousness of sin sin in the Christian's life, John says, sin is an offense to God. One writer says, one cannot soften the nature or character of sin without distorting reality. Sin is intrinsically evil. So the question for us is, what is the sin in our life that we try to minimize as inconsequential? Try to just gloss over and somehow explain it so that we can... You know, minimize the discomfort level or or whatever. What is it for you? John's words here should give us a different perspective on our seemingly that it's insignificant and God understands. Our sin, regardless of how we might want to minimize it, is lawlessness. It's an offense to God. Well, we move on. John gives another reason why we should take sin seriously. Christ died because of sin. And you know when He appeared, and you know that when He appeared in order to... And you know that He appeared in order to take away sins. I was adding when in there. And you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in in Him there is no sin. John's words here clearly remind us of the words of John the Baptist from John's Gospel. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John is saying here that the very purpose of the appearing of Christ, His incarnation, His birth, His life, His death and resurrection, the very purpose was to take away sin. He came to live and die on the cross for what purpose? To deal with our sin. To take it away. Because it is our sin that so affects our relationship with God. Because in Him there is no sin. He is a God of sinless perfection. Therefore, for us to tolerate Sin in our lives, regardless of how insignificant we might think it is, for us to rationalize our sin is in total contradiction to who He is and what He has done for us. Well, we move on. John tells us what sin in our life really says about us. Indifference towards sin says we really don't know God. Verse 6. 
no one who abides in him sins. Let's pause there and we'll continue with the verse. But let's pause here. Now, John is not saying that a true Christian does not sin. The term abide, as we have seen, as we have been going through the book of 1 John, the term abide is not a term of salvation. It's not a salvation kind of word. It's a word that describes the close and dependent relationship with Christ that the believer is to have. We are to abide in Him. Remember from John 15, as a branch abides in the vine, so you are to abide in me, and thereby you can bear much fruit. And what John means here is this. To the extent that we are abiding in Christ, looking to Him, relying on Him, being dependent upon Him, drawing upon Him, to that extent, we will not sin. If we are sinning, we are not abiding. If we are sinning, we are not abiding. If we are allowing sin to continue in our lives, we are not abiding. We are cutting ourselves off from Him as our source spiritual strength. John goes on, back to the text. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Again, this may sound like John is saying, well, if we have sin in our lives, then we've never been saved. We've never known the Lord. We've never even seen the Lord. But we know that is not what John means. And how do we know that? Because of what John himself has said earlier in this very book. We don't have to go to Paul. We don't have to go to Peter. We don't have to go to the Gospel of John. We just go to what John said Two chapters previous, he said, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. John acknowledges there that as Christians we sin. So he can't be saying here that the one who sins has never really been saved. Okay? That's not how we are understand. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. So what does he mean when he says anyone who sins hasn't seen or knows or doesn't know God? Well, some say it means, well, if we habitually sin, we have not seen him or know him and we're not really saved. If we habitually sin. But that that leaves too many questions to be a satisfactory answer. How much sin is habitual? How much? How do, how do you define it? How do you quantify it? How often is too often? We're going to come back. We're going to see this same issue a little bit later, and I'll have a more extensive discussion there. Verse 9. 
But what does John mean here? What he means is this. If we sin, when we sin, we've lost sight of him. We don't, we're not seeing him clearly when we sin. And we're acting like we don't really know him when we sin. One writer says, whoever sins is in a not seeing and not knowing condition in reference to God. In other words, if we are tolerant of sin in our lives, it says we really don't know God very well. John has already said this in chapter 2, verse 4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. The one who says, yeah, I know God, but, 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 but doesn't care about keeping God's word, <laughs> he, he, that's evidence that that person really doesn't know God. They may be saved, but they don't, they don't really know and understand the character of God and God's purposes. And that's what John is saying here. If we tolerate sin in our lives and treat it as insignificant and inconsequential, then we really can't say that we know Him. John continues and says, you might think that sin is no big deal, but sin is a part of the lie of the devil. Verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. It seems to suggest, when he says, don't be deceived, this seems to suggest that this is what they were being taught by those false teachers. Don't be deceived by what they're saying. And the false teachers today would be, I think, in many ways, our culture around us that redefines and minimizes sin. And this deception that minimizes sin is a lie of the devil. And, is, and it, in this context, this lie is that sin in our life is not all that important and no big deal. We think we can be quote-unquote righteous and fine with God and continue with sin in our life. John says no. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. And in this context, righteousness is dealing with the sin in our lives and, and, and striving to live a life free from sin. Practicing righteousness is fighting against the sin in our lives and trying to walk as Jesus walked, just as He is righteous. Righteousness here is a Christ-centered life. 
that takes sin, takes seriously the commandments of God and fights each day against the lie of the devil that sin is inconsequential. Another reason for confronting our sin is in verse 8. Sin is aligning ourselves with the devil. Verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil. Again, this is not an unsaved person. If that were true, we'd all be unsaved. Because in some measure, we all practice sin. What he means is that our sin in our lives ultimately has its source in the devil. And And so sin is to align ourselves with the devil and his purposes. That's what we're doing when we choose to allow the sin in our life to continue. We're aligning ourselves with the devil and his purposes. We go on in the text, For the devil has sinned from the beginning. We're aligning ourselves with the one who has opposed God's purposes from the very beginning. And John is trying to show us and give us a clearer perspective on what our sin really is. And then we continue in the text, the Son of God appeared for this purpose that He might destroy the works of the devil. His point is that Jesus came for the very purpose to destroy Satan's works now and ultimately in eternity, eternity, and yet when we tolerate sin, we are allowing, aligning ourselves with the very one and very thing that Jesus came to destroy. We're at cross-purposes with what Jesus came to do. I think John is trying to wake us up from our complacency. And then finally, number six, sin obscures our identity as a child of God. In verses 9 and 10. Verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Don't you think this verse kind of raises some questions? The person born of God is who? The believer. The one who's born of God. Okay, the believer. The children of God. Those who are born again through faith in Christ. And John seems to say that no born again person practices sin. And even more than that, cannot sin. I think this should raise some questions in our minds. Like, because John himself has acknowledged in this letter that we all sin? 
Like, again, chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing to you that you may not sin, but if any sins, it's a legitimate possibility, it's going to happen. Well, we have an advocate with the Father when we sin. He anticipates the fact that we, as believers, will sin. We can't deceive ourselves by saying, no, I don't, I don't, I don't. So earlier, John acknowledges that we sin, but here, the problem is, in verse 9, he seems to say that we do not and even cannot. It raises a question also because of our own personal experience. Let's face it. We know that we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior and on the basis of the Word of God have been born again because of that. But we know we sin too. All too often, but we know we sin. So how do we explain this? What John is saying here. No one who is born of God practices sin, and he cannot sin. Well, the most common explanation is that it means to habitually sin. The born-again person will not and cannot habitually sin. If he or she continues to sin, then that is evidence that they are not truly born again. But that explanation is unsatisfactory. I mean, that, 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 that's the most common explanation of this verse. But honestly, it causes my head to explode. Honestly. To say that it is habitual sin, it is undefinably subjective. Undefinably subjective. How much sin is habitual sin? How do we define it? How do we quantify it as being habitual? <laughs> the way we usually de- quantify it or define it, it's usually someone that sins more than we do. <laughs> we wouldn't say it's true of us, but we can certainly see that someone else could be habitually sinning. Now, we, we wouldn't fall into that category, but, but someone else might. It's just undefinably subjective. And, and, and secondly, it, to say that it's, if you habitually sin, you've never been born of God. It defines, get this now, it defines the validity of our faith in Christ, our salvation experience based upon what we do in the following years. You understand what I'm saying? It's like when we come to Christ, it's, it's almost like it's probationary and we don't really know for sure if we've come to Christ unless after some period of time we can think that, well, I, I've done enough good things or I haven't done too many bad things. I'm not habitually sinning, so that must mean when I really came to Christ, it was genuine, or the opposite could be true as well. And all of this leads, this idea that it's habitual, all, 
it leads to a total loss of assurance of salvation. Because we never know for sure how much sin is too much that would render us never having been saved to begin with. We just never know for sure, and we never know going forward what we're going to do in the future, that if we sin too much, it would render us unsafe. So we have no assurance of salvation. Well, if we don't explain it by saying, no one who is born of God habitually sins, what does John mean? Well, it can't mean, it can't mean that. What does he mean? John is appealing here to our true identity in Christ. Our identity as a child of God, born of God, born of the Father. And as one born of Him, as one born of God, we do not sin. It doesn't mean we don't sin. But sin does not proceed from our new nature and position and standing in Christ as one born of God, as a child of God. That's not where it, from where it proceeds. When we sin, our sin is in spite of and contrary to our identity as a child of God. And that is what makes it so reprehensible. Our sin obscures our identity as one born of God. The sin in our life is incompatible with and in conflict with our new nature and our true identity as one born of God. And for that reason, John can say, no one who is born of God practices sin. It's not that part of us that is born of God that is sinning. We sin, but it doesn't come from that new nature that we have received. And that's what he says, because his seed abides in him. Because we have God's seed in us, our sin is all the more unacceptable. God's, seeds, God's seed refers here to that which God used to bring us to Himself and make us His children. He used the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And because we have His seed, the Word and the Holy Spirit, John says, and He cannot sin because He is born of God. Our sin does not proceed from our born-again nature. Our born-again nature cannot sin. Our sin comes from our sinful self and sinful nature. And therefore, our sin is obscuring our identity as who we really are in Christ, the child of God. And in verse 10, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. And literally this means, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are appear or are manifest. Again, these are not to be understood as saved and unsaved categories of people. Children of God, children of the devil. This whole context is about sin. 
in the life of the believer. And through our obedience to God and dealing with sin in our life, we clearly appear as children of God. But when we're tolerating sin, we appear as children of the devil because the source of that sinful behavior is ultimately the devil. Now, the remainder of this verse actually begins a new section. And so we'll take it up here when we continue, Lord willing, next week. Now, what is John saying to us in this passage? What's his message to us? The Apostle John is really going to great lengths to show us how unacceptable our sin is in our Christian life and in the sight of God. And he presents six reasons or arguments why we cannot, why we cannot be indifferent or casual about sin and why we should pursue righteousness with greater zeal. The first one is sin is an offense to God. However we may see it, however, let me emphasize that differently. However we may see it and accept it or rationalize it, it's lawlessness. It's wicked, it's evil, and it's iniquitous. That's what it is. No matter how small or inconsequential we think it is. Lawlessness. Secondly, second reason he gives, Christ died because of our sin. He came to take away our sin not just for us to tolerate it and minimize it. Thirdly, indifference toward our sin says we really don't know God. No one who has seen Him or knows Him, can we really say that we know God if we tolerate sin in our lives? Are we really knowing Him if we're doing that? Number four, sin is part of the lie of the devil. The devil seeks to deceive us to think that our sin is not all that bad and we can still be acceptable to God. It is the one who practices a Christ righteousness that is righteous and pleasing before God. Number five, sin is aligning ourselves with the devil. When we sin, we're really following the devil, which is in total conflict with Jesus' purposes to come and destroy the works of the devil. And number six, sin obscures our identity as a child of God and we appear as children of the devil. This is a call to us to conscientious righteousness. It's a call to each of us to take of utmost seriousness the sinful patterns of behavior in our lives and not be content with it just continuing on oh i know it's bad but you know you know no one's perfect you know we must do all we can to change our behavior I'm going to take it a step further. We must not simply think about sin as sin in general and agree, oh yes, sin is bad. We all agree to that. Sin is bad. Sin is bad. And then we just go on with our lives. 
it must become more personal than that. What is that sin for you? That's what I'm asking. What is that sin for you? None of us sins in every way, but all of us have the areas where we struggle and allow sin in our lives. What is that sin for you? Sins of the tongue, let's say? Gossip? Lying? Profanity? Sins of moral impurity, lust, thoughts, affairs, pornography, inappropriate behavior, sins of relationships, excessive anger, or maybe it's indifference, resentment, bitterness, uncaring, unloving, a lack of forgiveness, unwilling to forgive, or maybe unwilling to seek forgiveness? What about our life in the world? Would it be sins of greed or covetousness? A love for the world. Jealousy, drunkenness, substance abuse, cheating, dishonesty. And what about your relationship to God? Has it, maybe it's just grown stale and you're allowing it to just continue distant from the Lord. Jesus is no longer the priority in your life that he should be. Maybe you're ignoring the word. Maybe there's a lack of prayer. You're not sharing your faith when you have opportunities. Maybe you're absenting yourself from worship when you know you should be be here. If this passage says anything, it says we must give attention to the quality of our relationship to God and what we allow as part of our life. We cannot allow our sinful behavior to just be there and continue and think that we're fine in our relationship to God. We must seek to repent and change. We must pursue that Christ-centered righteousness to walk as He walked, just as He is pure. The saddest thing in life is not a waste of talent. The saddest thing in life will be to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account to Him of our wasted life.
This is John's call. This is God's call to us. A call. The conscientious. Righteous living. Let's pray. Thank you again, Lord, for your word that you've given to us and even with the difficulties of this passage and maybe not fully understanding everything, there's enough of it that we can clearly understand. And so we pray that the Spirit of God would make that clear to us, Lord, and not only that, but penetrate our defenses when you call us to change. To surrender our obstinate wills, our defiance, our defenses that we have made for our sinful behavior. And to say, no longer. I want to get this right. I have to get this right. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would work through the truth of your word to do your work in the heart of every person here today every person. May we leave different than when we came in. In Jesus' name, amen.